There's no simple sentence where Jesus says, and this is how you ought to do church. But what we do have is we have a mosaic of different verses um, and different theologies that are right throughout scriptures um, that when you see them together, actually create this picture of the way that God's people in the Old and New Testament were doing life together as God's people uh, and the way in which God actually wants us to be um, intergenerational. He, He actually wants the gospel truths and the stories of who he is and what he has done to be passed on through generations in lots of different ways. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast. We're into season three where we're looking at engaging people in the church and um, we're talking about intergenerational intergenerational youth ministry, which is always what the Shock Absorber is about. And I have two guests, well one one co-host, two guests. Oh, one co-host, one guest. Sorry about that, <laughs> that was good. Uh, my co-host, Stu Crawshaw, how are you? Hello Joel, very good, how are you? Good. Always excellent to have you on board. And, Always uh, great to be with you too. Yeah. Chatting about intergenerational ministry. Talking and, about things. Yes, that's right. Just many things. And we also have Soul Revival Church's uh, children's pastor, Tim Billhartz. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Joel. It's really great to uh, share the couch with you guys. Yes, thank you very much. Share all individual couches. Individual couches, say, yep. But we're, we're, yep. we're <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sit too close to you. No. <laughs> um, yeah, COVID, you've got to be... Got to be a bit separated. Got a bit separate, yeah. I'm staying socially distanced from you. Um, Now, Tim, uh, let's talk about what do you do day to day? What's your usual uh, role? Yeah, so I do work for Soul Revival Church one day a week as children's pastor, just coordinate uh, other coordinators, helping run the kids' programs here. Uh, But uh, the most of my week is spent working for YouthWorks, which is an organisation in the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, um, looking after youth and children's uh, ministry in the diocese. So my role is a children's ministry advisor, and basically that means I get to hang out with churches and help them do uh, effective children's ministry. So I spend a lot of time hanging out with children's ministers and rectors, uh, doing training for teams, uh, lecturing at YouthWorks College on children's ministry and intergenerational ministry, and basically anything that I can do to help other churches uh, do really effective children's ministry is uh, my game. What's the what's the best part of that role? Uh, the best part is seeing God working in churches of all different sizes and all different demographics, um, all over Sydney, down uh, Wollongong and the Shoalhaven as well. So in the region I travel in, there's uh, suburban Sydney, there's Wollongong, which is a university town, so uh, tons of young adults, um, some great churches there. And then as you get further down the south coast, uh, you get to areas where pretty much everyone between the ages of 18 and 35 leave to go and find jobs or study elsewhere. Um, And so there's big generational gaps in churches. And so you end up with um, children's and youth ministry, which looks a little bit different than it does in the suburbs and in university towns. But God is good and he is faithful to his church. And it's great to be able to work with all those churches um, and see them be able to raise disciples to know yeah, no one loved Jesus. Yeah, you spoke about the, uh, maybe a bit of generational gaps happening, so that's something that obviously we'll get into yeah. very soon. But I thought it'd be worth asking you the question, um, how did you become a Christian? Yeah, uh, so I was born into a Christian household. My mum and dad loved Jesus. Um, Jesus was just kind of always present in our house. 
Um, Sunday was church day. No matter whether we were at home or on holidays, we just always went to church. It was just the most, it was the priority of the weekend. Um, Dad would pray around the dinner table, uh, we'd read the Bible together. Um, They supplied me with ways that I could read the Bible for myself. And so, yeah, I think I, I I look back, there's never really been a day where I haven't known that Jesus was real and there. Um, like all people, I think, who grow up in Christian households, you um, go through moment, you know, highs and lows. Um, and certainly as you sort of differentiate from your parents in your teenage years, you've got to keep thinking, okay, is it uh, just my parents' faith or is it actually genuinely my own? Um, and was really helped by a lot of great mentors. Uh, Stu was my youth minister <laughs> at the time, amongst uh, many others, um, that helped me to say, yeah, it actually genuinely is my own faith, um, as well as the faith of my family. And so, yeah, I've just sought to live into that with all of the, the ups and downs that um, is normal in the Christian life. Yeah, right. Was there one point you can identify where it's like, actually, this is the time that I'm making a commitment myself, not just what I've been brought up in? Uh, no, but I mean, there was one very significant conversation at school I was at a, a Christian school um, and the teachers there had quite a discipleship mindset which was really lovely um, and one teacher that I got on really well with we were in the playground one time and he was we were just chatting I can't remember about what but he said oh you're a Christian aren't you Tim and I said oh yeah guess so Christian family Christian yeah. church go to church uh, Christian school go to church every week I guess so um, and he said okay great uh, here's the areas of your life I don't see that playing out, um, which Gosh. was really bold. Yeah. Um, but it came from a real warm place and a place of genuine discipleship. Uh, and it was really just uh, the, the good kick up the butt that I needed because what he was pointing out was uh, your belief and your praxis isn't aligned. Um, and to actually have Jesus all of life meant that there were these particular areas that he noticed of me hanging around school, um, which, I mean, they weren't. Yeah, I was never a serious troublemaker by any means, but there were things that he noticed that I, I wasn't having Jesus as Lord of my life. And so that was a really helpful conversation. So uh, I think that was that was one of a few places where uh, Jesus, I think, I guess, became more real to me. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know if you listened to the last episode that we did, but um, we titled it, Does the Church Have an Image Problem? And I'm wondering, wondering if you have an answer for that. Would you Ooh. agree? Uh, I yeah, have listened to uh, last episode, listened oh, to all you. the episodes, so, <laughs> or every episode. Make sure you subscribe. Um, <laughs> but uh, does the church have an image problem with youth? Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, statistically, you can look at the number of teenagers who are in Christian churches, and it's quite small. Um, you can see, uh, as I look at statistics about teenagers who are engaged in spiritual things. It's actually a a mixed bag. Um, There are a number of uh, teenagers and young adults who will say quite strongly they're uh, anti-God or anti-church, quite strongly. Um, But actually there's a lot of young adults and teenagers who identify as some sort of spiritual um, and are seeking. They might not identify as Christians. They might not want to participate in uh, organisational and institutional church, but are deeply curious um, and wondering about spiritual things. Um, so does the church have an image problem? Uh, I think sometimes, yeah, there, there's been some stumbling blocks. You guys talked about it last week that young people have noticed in the church. There are times when the church have not lived in the way of Jesus, um, that we have fallen short. Um, and it's right to point those out. It's right to acknowledge those things. Um, and one of the things we'll talk about today is actually how we um, 
shape ourselves as, as a household and as a family and how that um, it won't make us perfect. Churches are always full of sinful people. We will always um, fall short of what we ought to be um, until new creation. But um, we're, I think thinking of ourselves as, as family and household, uh, as we'll talk about today, is one of the ways that we can help that image problem. So a question for both of you guys. When did you both realize that intergenerational ministry was the way that you wanted to share the love of Jesus? I had a similar story to Tim in that I got brought up by Christian parents and my parents had just become Christians and they were very active in the church and they were really excited about ministry. So I really enjoyed growing up in my primary school years uh, with my mum and dad who were ministering together, particularly with the youth group earlier on. And I remember being brought along by my parents to the youth group and I have this memory of me being seven or eight pouring cordial for the teenagers. But I remember feeling so grown up and big because all these teenagers were being really friendly to me and it was a really lovely experience. And I think that I didn't think of it as intergenerational, but I was getting the benefit, I suppose, of being there with my parents in ministry and I was also uh, being friends with teenagers. Later when I became a youth leader and we were really convicted by Jesus' words to love God and love each other in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. We felt really convicted not to just run youth group as an event for the teenagers to have community, but we flipped that and felt that the biggest priority for us was that as youth leaders we should be uh, uh, being a peer group that they could grow up into. And so that was awesome. And then as they started becoming young adults themselves, the kids that we were running the youth group, for we call a youth community as they grew up they were becoming our friends and what was interesting for us is we noticed that the generation gap had become so um, diverse that even people of five years gap were different to each other so we found that it might sound a bit hard to imagine but people who are 25 and people who are 20 grew up with slightly different um, experiences different music different um, technologies even and because things were changing so quickly that yeah, it took a bit of work for us to come together and, and actually work out how to be church together as in those differences. And so then later we got really convicted about asking our elders to come along and be a part of our group with us because we were really interested in what they saw uh, faith to be. And so, yeah, early on, this is in the early 90s like we talked about before, it was just really exciting that it just grew naturally out of that idea of um, expressing uh, the fact that we are the church and that Jesus was building the church and we're partnering with him as he was doing it and those expressions for us just seem to come naturally, yeah. Yeah, cool. What about you, Tim? Uh, you were growing up in that youth community in the 90s, I believe. So yeah, I so I was in um, I was in high school you. in 95, was when I was in year seven. Uh, so yeah, right in the middle of um, this experiment. or yeah. So for me as a youth group kid, um, coming through youth group under Stu's leadership, it was, I mean, it was the only version of youth ministry I knew was one where the leaders were genuinely seeking to be our friends. Um, uh, lots of youth leaders I know are genuinely pastoral, love discipling their kids, but uh, I don't think I really appreciated it at the time, but there was something as I grew up through the youth ministry that I could really see, yeah, these youth leaders actually wanted to be my friends, wanted to share life with me. And that uh, in the, the structure that we had became really evident when you um, graduated out of the year 10 group because there was this invite to the young adult community. So the year 11s, you go along on Saturday night to Soul Revival um, and that's where all the youth leaders were. They were all hanging out there and they were saying, hey, you've 
now that you're in year 11, um, we want to continue this friendship and you actually continue the friendship, not in a structured youth program, um, but actually just in the hangout of a Saturday night. Um, And so the social thing. So, um, but even before that, we had... um, uh, we used to have these things called rally bashes, which I know you guys have talked about before, where all the different ages would come together, um, the, the Year 7, 8 youth group, the Year 9, 10 youth group, and then everyone from the Saturday night. And I remember one of those, uh, I think I was in Year 8, we had started down at uh, Swallow Rock down in Grace Point um, and had a bit of a picnic on the beach as the sun was setting. Then we all trapped up the hill to the old church. We had there some Tim's at Grace Point um, and we had a dance party. There was a band called Belvedere Blues <laughs> that were playing and we were all just moshing on this, you know, scrawny year eight kid. Um, smacked up against these two massive dudes. I know one of them was Brad Ware. Um, <laughs> I think the other one might have been Greg McIndoe. I can't remember, but just these enormous dudes, I'm probably up to their chests, and we're all just moshing together and it was beautiful. There was just something just really lovely because everyone was there to enjoy each other. There was no attitude, there was no uh, hierarchy on age, like I'm an old kid, get it, what are you doing, little young whippersnapper. Like everyone was just genuinely joyful and Jesus-centred. Um, you know, we, we stopped moshing and open up the bible and just read slabs and someone would talk um to us and there's just really joyful understanding of what we meant to be christians of all these ages um and so that was that was the youth community i was growing up into um and so that's kind of i've always assumed that to be the case um after high school um i did uh, the Berea course with Stu. remember sitting in his lounge room uh what have that 2001 would have been um <laughs> doing the Berea course and talking about those these different models of youth ministry and realizing that actually what we were doing and what I had experienced um, was fairly unique and I was starting to become a youth leader myself at that point and I remember having those same conversations then with the year sevens that I was leading was hey guys um, we're not just running this for you we're actually running this with you and we're doing this to be your friends Uh, and we genuinely want to be friends with you Um, you're 12 and 13 I'm whatever 19 um, but yeah, we want to have Jesus-centered friendships with each other, uh, and yeah, so that's just been really normative to me. Uh, the language of intergenerational ministry kind of came later. Um, it largely come through studies and lecturing that I've done at YouthWorks, um, but everything I do and read is just kind of reiterating the fact of what I was do- experiencing in the mid '90s. Um, people actually talking about in, a, in an academic space and a really thoughtful space, um, and. There's lots of people who have been thinking in parallel with with Stu's ideas about shock absorber uh, for a number of years, and it's been really exciting. The more I read, the more I say, oh, yeah, this is what I was experiencing, and this is what I'm um, thinking about myself and what we're trying to do at Soul Revival. And so seeing the parallels from people all over the globe uh, thinking similar thoughts, I'm just like, yeah, there is something going on here which is really powerful and wonderful. I remember having a similar experience to you, Tim, a little bit later. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, And doing Berea and going, what do you mean this, is, this isn't the only way people do church? Because <laughs> it's like I'd come from a non-Christian family and then just grown up in Soul Revival and obviously we may go secret at, on this podca- podcast and at Soul Revival Church that we favour intergenerational ministry. Um, so I was kind of like, oh, people do things differently. Um, something also we learn through Berea is um, theology strategy practice is something we like to um, use in a way to develop principles about how we do ministry. But today um, we were going to focus on theology, the main part of it and what doesn't change. Um, 
both of you guys have done a lot of study on this. How does the Bible inform our um, thoughts and practices and strategies around um, like intergenerational ministry? What what is it? What why do we think the Bible says that intergenerational ministry is a good way to do ministry? Yeah, uh, the first thing to say is there's not a simple proof text for this. Um, so when I was chatting to you earlier today, you know, we've got you're the example of you know, as Christians, should we love our enemies? Yes. And here's the, the <coughs> sentence where Jesus says that explicitly. Um, as Christians, should we do church in an intergenerational way? Well, there's no proof text for that. There's no simple sentence where Jesus says, and this is how you ought to do yeah. <laughs> church. But what we do have is we have a mosaic of different verses um, and different theologies that are right throughout scriptures um, that when you see them together, actually create this picture of the way that God's people in the Old and New Testament were doing life together as God's people uh, and the way in which God actually wants us to be um, intergenerational he actually wants the gospel truths and the stories of who he is and what he has done to be passed on through generations in lots of different ways so if we start with the old testament a couple of ways in which um, the old testament people of god uh, sort of express this idea uh, one of the classic texts is from deuteronomy 6 um, so deuteronomy 6 is moses talking to the people as they they've wandered through the wilderness they're about to enter the promised land and God, uh, through Moses, is telling his people, I want you to continue to be faithful people right throughout the generations. Your children, your children's children, your children's children's children. God has this um, generational view of faithfulness. Um, and it comes from this current generation being faithful to God's commands and then passing that on. And so part of it um, is things that happen in the home. And so uh, Christian household is one of God's key ways in which he wants to bring up the next generation. Um, but you take in the context of Deuteronomy, he's actually talking to all Israel. It's not like he took the parents apart and said, okay, this is a separate little parent seminar just for you guys. He's talking to the whole of Israel and says, all Israel, you guys are responsible for can, um, being faithful and passing on that faithfulness to the next generation. Uh, so that's a really uh, key one in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Psalm 78 picks up some of these themes, actually references a whole lot of the Exodus accounts and the stories of Exodus about how the people had or hadn't been faithful during that time um, and encourages them to pass on those stories, to pass on the, um, the stories of God's good rescue and what he has done and that it's the responsibility of the Israelites to pass it on to the next generation. There's a beautiful line in Psalm 78. It says, let me not die until I've passed this on to the next generation, yeah, cool. uh, which is really awesome. Um, and then you match that with a number of other stories that happen in the Old Testament as well. Um, one little obscure one is in 2 Chronicles. Um, there's a king called Jehoshaphat who's there at the time. He's under siege uh, from the enemy. And uh, he wants to pray to God, but actually what he does is he brings the whole community together. And as he brings the whole community together, he then speaks to them and prays in their midst. And there's this uh, little line, which you could easily skip over, but the fact that the wives, the children, and the little ones stood there before the Lord together. And so there's this, the, the multi-generational people of God all gathered together at this significant moment. Uh, for Jehoshaphat, it was a moment of crisis. Um, later on in Ezra, you see something similar, which is a moment of celebration. Uh, when all the generations are gathered together. And so from the Old Testament, we see a few different places where this mosaic of intergenerational passing on the stories of uh, God and his rescue, what he's done for his people, and worshipping together in big key moments uh, comes across really clearly. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I didn't know about that story in 2 Chronicles. It's a really beautiful picture of being in a family together. Mm. Um, Stewie, do you any reflections on the Old Testament yourself? 
Yeah, I think I, I think I hundred percent agree with you, Tim. That the, it's really rich in uh, showing us how uh, the people of God were built up from the family units into one big family, the people of God. And um, the Psalm seventy eight reference that you mentioned, I really love that. The idea of we will not hide the Lord God from from the future generations that will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. Mm. And I think what what's really interesting is not just a really good way to live in intergenerational community, which it is, but it's got an even higher purpose in the Old Testament that it's actually about bringing glory to God so that as the young people are taught about God, yes, there's a, there's a utilitarian function in that, that we obviously want to make sure that we keep passing on the good news of about uh, the love of God to each new generation so they can then pass it on to their children. But in the process of that, what we're doing is we're declaring the praises of God. And so I think intergenerational ministry brings glory to God. And you just see that richly through the Old Testament. And mm. I really love that. Yeah. Tim, can I ask, just before we move on to um, some of the intergenerational references in the New Testament, can you tell us why you've put in a lot of work to this? What's the purpose of that? Where, where are you heading with that work that you're trying to put in in terms of your study and stuff with intergenerational ministry? Yeah, so as I read the scriptures, as I read thoughtful people who are talking about these ideas, um, I just become more and more convinced that uh, intergenerational discipleship is good for all generations, um, that everyone benefits when we speak up and down the generations and encourage each other. We'll talk about this a little bit in the New Testament uh, verses. Um, and so, I mean, ultimately, I want people to be faithful Christians and I want that to then spread out to those who are not yet Christians. Um, and so there's both a discipleship and a missional impulse to being intergenerational about actually shaping each other. Um, obviously, there's that ongoing generational. We, we want our kids and our kids' kids and even our kids' kids' kids that we won't meet this side of eternity um, to be faithful Christians. So there's a beautiful vision set before us in the scriptures to continue that work. Um, but it's also good for us as adults to be hanging out with kids um, and seeing them as disciples of Jesus and learning from them. Um, and there's great benefit from you know, those of us who have older saints as well to sit and listen to them. And so there's a huge benefit. I genuinely believe as we read through the scriptures, we get this beautiful picture that God actually designed us for intergenerational relationships and intergenerational discipleship is, is the most formative way to grow as a disciple of Jesus. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, cool. Um, do you want to take us into the New Testament and see where, where you actually develop those um, thoughts from? Yeah, sure. So again, it's a bit of a mosaic of a few different passages. Um, one of the key ones is in Matthew 18. Uh, the disciples have been arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Um, and Jesus could have pulled in the charismatic church planner. He could have pulled in uh, the wise sage or the Pharisee or the teachers of the law. Um, but actually he brings in a child. And he brings a child in their midst. Uh, he says, okay, you want to see the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here we go. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so there is something going on here, and I don't pretend to fully understand this passage. I think there's a lot more going on that I have yet to grasp. Um, but there's something going on about watching children as disciples and that we as adults can look to them and see the uh, theologians have for a long time talk about a childlike faith, not a childish 
faith, but a childlike faith. There's something about um, the childlike faith that we can learn from. Uh, and so as I've cheekily said in uh, sermons before, uh, how can you expect to grow as a disciple of Jesus unless you're hanging around children? Um, that seems to be what Jesus is saying. We, we learn to be disciples. We learn to be what it means to be in the kingdom of God from looking at children. And so that's one of the intergenerational pieces is uh, not just looking upwards for mentorship from those who are older than us, but actually looking down as well. And that's what the shock absorber model is all about, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That we're um, sitting and listening to young people. We're letting them uh, be the shock absorber to the church. We're letting them shape uh, culture. And we're using the institution of the church, the, the body of the car, in Stu's metaphor, to actually help harness that to its greatest potential as well. And so the generations are speaking up and down to each other. So that's one of the really key passages. Uh, Another one that comes in um, and talks of what Stu said before about the sacrificial loving uh, is when John, uh, where Jesus in his upper room discourse, talks about what it means to love. And so the the new commandment that I give you to love one another as I have loved you. Uh, And how does Christ love us? Well, he he goes to the cross. He sacrifices himself. Um, He puts his own needs aside. Um, Paul talks about in Philippians, even the the greatness of heaven, he lays that aside to come and to serve and to love us. And so one of the important pieces of intergenerational discipleship is actually realising the church is not about me. Uh, It's not about getting my needs met. But there are going to be times where I put aside my own preferences, my own desires, uh, in order to sacrificially love those who are unlike me. Uh, And so I think Jesus gives us a shape for ministry and a shape for church family um, that comes there. I think, Um, just if I could jump in there, Tim, I think that's a really important stance if we're going to have an intergenerational church. Because, again, like I was saying earlier, even between people who are five years in difference in a youth ministry, let alone 20, 30, 40, 50 years difference, or even from different cultures, um, if people are only uh, growing up being trained to relate to and minister to and to love and be loved by people in the church who are the same as them, they're not going to necessarily be thinking, um, well, how can I come and, and what creative ways can I find to love someone who I might not understand or I might be different to? It takes work and it, it takes a stance of uh, this, this may or may not um, be an easy conversation but it i'm i'm willing to uh put myself in this place to be with and alongside this person even though they're different to me and so i think jesus here is giving us a really good stance when it comes to intergenerational ministry by saying uh we're going to love one another rather than come to be loved so if everyone's coming to church to be loved everyone would stand around looking at each other waiting for someone to come and love them but if everyone comes to love everyone then everyone gets loved that's kind of what jesus is going on there about in John 13. Mm. Yeah, just the, the, the other thing, I mean, the sacrificial thing is just really important, I think, is that we, when we're talking about intergenerational ministry, it can't happen unless you're giving it up, mm. giving up something. So, mm. yeah, that's cool. Um, you have another verse that you want to... Yeah, so then we kind of get into some of Paul's writings um, and the things that he says. Um, the language he uses of household, I think, is really key. So he talks about the household of God in 1 Timothy, the household of faith in Galatians. And I don't think he uses those terms accidentally. I think he's intentionally trying to build into us this idea that church is meant to be family-like. Um, and in families, there are people of all different 
generations. But there's also something about the warmth um, that comes from being a family. Um, as we talked about earlier, one of the things that the, the image problem that young people have with the church is that it's become uh, in some ways an institution, a behemoth, and, and they can see the, the errors that have come there. Um, and again, not to say that families are perfect, but there is something about being a household and being a family, about the warmth that comes from that, um, that if we're actually seeking to be family-like with each other, um, brothers and sisters, uh, as we're called, you know, God is our Abba, He's our Father, uh, Christ is our brother, um, we're all brothers and sisters together. That gives a different dynamic, um, and it also recognises that people of all ages are my brothers and sisters. There's something really uh, flattening um, about that. Um, so I know in last season when you guys talked about um, Oldenburg's um, third place, one of the characteristics of that is uh, this, this, this flattening out where everyone is, is an equalising place. Um, and I think Chap Clark in his book Adoptive Church does this really well. He talks about how because we are all adopted, um, whether it's the, the minister on stage giving the sermon or it's the child in the cry room uh, and everyone in between, no matter how important you are, uh, whatever metric you're using, actually when it comes to the household of God, we're all just adopted. Um, we're all here together and there's this equalising place. And so it doesn't matter what age you are, what stage you are, uh, what your position is in a company or in a household or whatever it is, a school student outside of the church walls there's something really lovely about that so i think that's um some really beautiful things to to catch on to um and then a couple of other places um paul talks in ephesians about how every uh member of the church is given to each other for the building up and the maturing of the saints uh so in that ephesians 4 passage i think that's a really lovely thing and just to recognize again children youth senior saints those who are you know 9 and 99 are there given to us as a church, as a body, to grow us all into the maturity, which is Christ, who is our head. So that's a really lovely picture as well. Uh, and then when it comes to some real practicalities, I think Titus is a good example where Paul is encouraging uh, Titus the, for the older men to uh, raise the younger men and disciple them, for the older women to uh, help the younger women. And he gives some um you know, culturally relevant examples of that. And, and you know, now 2,000 years later, some of those will be relevant. We'll have other things. What does it mean to be old men and young men in, you know, 2021 where we are now? There's ways we want to encourage that. But the other thing I think is really beautiful is in 1 Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, um, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believer in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. What we see there is that Paul is saying to Timothy, don't let the fact that you are younger than some of these other saints, you are of a younger generation, you can actually disciple upwards as well. So we see this reciprocal, this um, equality of going up the generations as well, where those who are younger than us can actually shape the older believers. Um, and then if you, you marry that with what we said earlier in, in Matthew 18, that even the young child could be an example to us, you we see that there's this reciprocal nature, both up and down the generations, that we can all be learning from each other. And that's one of the key parts of intergenerational ministry and the way we're seeking to express that as a shock absorber here at Soul Revival. Yeah, it's, I, <clears throat> I think it's really cool when we're talking about the childlike faith thing, and you, you touched on it a number of times there, but we're, we're all fathers we're all blessed to have children ourselves and when you see some of the faith that um children just put in their parents and they think that everything is fine that's that jesus is saying well we need to have a similar f of that faith in our father in everyone's father in god and i i <clears throat> to bring that all together is a really 
interesting way to look at it. Um, Stu, is there anything you'd like to reflect on that before we get into more practicalities of intergenerational ministry? Yeah, again, like we said earlier, um, last week we were talking about the fact that, that young people have a lot of problem with the church. And I think the temptation for us as ministers is to try and think, oh, how can, how can we find some things in the Bible that will solve the current problems that we're facing with young people and listening to young people and trying to find some solutions in the Bible? But what I like about the intergenerational approach is it actually doesn't do that. The mechanism isn't to uh, just try and have an apologetic for a particular um, problem that young people would have. Oh, young people, it's hard to make contact with them. It's hard to, they're not as curious about faith. They have a credibility issue with the church. Rather than trying to find scriptures to meet each of those different problems that we see, what, what we've been convicted about with intergenerational ministry is let's be the people of God and let's actually take on God's model of a household and be a household. And the beautiful, delightful, even surprising reality of that is it actually does have solutions to those uh, problems of that, that image problem. And so, so it's actually in being authentically Christian, clothing ourselves with Christ, um, that we actually see that, that young people are going to notice as a difference. For example which we'll talk about in a little bit, but in that verse in 1 Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. There is a bit of a, a sense there that the Bible is saying that in every generation there's a generation gap. In every generation there are older people who look down on younger people and think they don't know what they're doing. And in every generation I think the reverse is true. Young people look at older people and go, well, you guys don't know what you're doing. More and more these days with technology, as young people laugh at people who don't know how to use technology, call them boomers, oh, good one, boomer, and all this sort of stuff. That's a really good example. But here the Bible is saying that if you actually start from a different point of view, don't start with the differences between you, but start from the commonality. You're, you're all Christians. You're adopted into Christ's family. So being part of the family means that we can actually... Uh, see that that actually overrides those differences so we have more respect for each other because we come as a family together and uh, i love those verses that tim was talking about particularly the one timothy three fifteen, that we're not just the church here at soul revival or the church there or whatever we are the household of god so we all come from our own households. I'm from the household of the Crawshaws. You're from the household of, of the McMasters. You're from the household of the Beelhartses. And that's all great. It's good being part of a family. But to think that we're part of God's family and we've mm. taken on his family name, and just like my boys would sometimes laugh at me because I don't know how to use technology, but at the end of the day, I'm their dad. And you know they're really uh, stoked to be part of the Crawshaw family. I think really um, leaning into that as the church, that we're actually talking about it and expressing the fact that we're the family of God. This is fantastic. So I really like the fact that we start with who we are and then we look at the problems in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you start talking about uh, intergenerational ministry, we, we uh, often talk about how you realise that in doing youth ministry, Stu, that it probably wasn't helping people come to know Jesus as often as they might be able to. Um, and that was in a, also, also a bit of a reaction to the current probably majority model around Anglican churches in particular of the, I'm sorry, the homogeneous unit principle. Mm. What, in terms of how that happened, um, where did you see yourself going in terms of like, because I know it even at Gaimere Anglican when you were there, you were very much in favour of intergenerational, but you were still within a homogeneous unit principle mm. church or mm. the rest of the church was operating on that. Mm. What, um, what led you to continue to down that path of intergenerational ministry as it as it as you got deeper and deeper into it? 
Well, I think the two things really briefly were we noticed that what the structures we had back in the late 80s weren't actually working. So a lot of the young people who were growing up in the church were leaving. In fact, pretty much, well, I think actually all of my friends left Guy Anglican. Most of them went to Northies, the pub. <laughs> and so many of the people in the Shire in my generation went to the big pub in the Shire, Northies, that they used to talk about going to church on Sunday, meaning they're going to Northies. So <laughs> there's so many people left the church to go to Northies, they called that their church. Uh, but those that did leave our church to go to other churches, you know, they, they went around to other churches too. So we were thinking, look, we have this uh, model in our church where the traditional services for the oldies, the family services for the young families, and then we had this youth service, presumably to bring up the youth. But what had happened is it had disrupted our mission and our discipleship because we weren't working as a team together. Uh, for example, if, if someone did have uh, a friend that they brought along who wasn't a Christian and they did become a Christian and come to church, that friend from a non-Christian family didn't have anywhere to bring their non-Christian, non-believing parents because it was hard to bring them to a youth service. So I was just noticing, well, why do we have that classification of youth service? Why don't we just have a service? And But that was one thing. But the other thing for me that really convicted me was just when we sat down as a youth leadership team and just started reading the Bible together and coming across that Matthew 22 passage about love God and love others, it was like light went on for us that it's about loving God in and being loved by God in relationship that was really core. And as we looked into that more deeply, we came across passages like uh, the Ephesians passage that um, in, in Ephesians 4 that we are the body of Christ as well. There's another reference to um, a metaphor that Paul mm. uses to describe the church, a body. And that's a very connected metaphor too, like a family, that you know the idea of the body is that we all be built up uh, as each part does its work. And, and what, we'd read stuff like that and go, well, it doesn't say all the youth would build themselves up together and all the oldies would build themselves up together. It says we would all build ourselves up together. So it was just a simple reading of scripture that really helped me to kind of think that it was time to, to yeah, be more embracing of these really cool values that were coming out of the Bible. And the result of that was we were surprised to see Christian youth and non-Christian youth really finding that quite appealing. Because as I said earlier, like in the Old Testament, when young people see christians being a family that brings glory to god that's the core thing they're like wow what what force is powerful enough to bring these groups of people that would normally in society not gather together but they're together in the church uh so i think that's that's one thing that i was thinking that challenged my view of the homogeneous unit principle what do you think tim have you got any thoughts with particularly from a kid's point of view with developmental psychology and all the different um ideas around homogeneous unit principle there yes i mean one of the reasons that the homogeneous unit principle really took off was um it causes really quick growth because people like to be with people who are just like themselves um and but one of the recognitions that we've got over the last sort of 50 years of this experiment uh, maybe a bit longer um is that there's it creates these um, drop-off points where people graduate out of their homogeneous unit. So we sort of artificially create the tension between, well, how do you help transition a child from kids' ministry into youth ministry? How do you transition a teenager from youth ministry into young adult ministry or young adult ministry into the adult ministry? Uh, what do you do when someone becomes um, too old for that service and really should move on to the, you know, the early morning hymn book service but they don't want to? Like you, you create these sort of um, tension points, these transition points, which is really a function of the homogeneous unit principle that you weren't together to start with. And so we notice these big drop-offs uh, at 
very significant places, um, particularly um, end of primary school. Um, there's another big drop in mid-high school and then there's another one just after high school as well. And so current statistics for the Sydney Anglican Church is um, by the time uh, the ch- Christian uh, church-based teenagers have left um, high school, about 40% of them are no longer coming to church. Um, and no longer connected to um, the, the body of Christ in, in any significant way. Um, and so that's one of the, the questions that comes up is, may potentially, uh, does intergenerational ministry uh, solve some of that problem because you, um, in some ways, remove those awkward transition points? Um, not because you don't have those age-sensitive ministries, but there is also, they're part of a collective where actually all the generations are spending at some time during the week or year uh, together. And so they're, they're known throughout the whole church. So I think that's really significant. The other thing that comes in um, is the sort of the schooling model. Um, and so uh, the, the child psychology of Piaget um, was, is really formative in the way that we teach kids according to their age and stage. Uh, and Piaget's theory was that was the best way for their learning and their development was to target them at particular ages and teach them what is appropriate to that age. Uh, and so that really inf- reinforced um, the schooling model as we see that you've got different age grades and whatever your age is, you graduate through school in that way. Um, and a lot of churches have um, modelled their children's ministry and their youth ministry off those same kind of stages. So you, you teach preschoolers as preschoolers and you separate them from the infant school kids because then you can do infant school ministry in a particular way uh, and then primary school ministry, junior high, senior high. The larger your church, the more you're able to break those down into even smaller and smaller units. If you've got a small church, uh, some of the churches I deal with say, oh, we've only got you know, 10 kids between 2 and 12 what do we do? We Because we assume that uh, we must break them down into smaller groups where they don't have the resources to do so. Um, but one of the things in intergenerational ministry and um, it, it gives us this framework that actually says, well, maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe that's not the most effective way of helping them grow as disciples. Uh, and so there's a lot feeding into um, that. But as you said, Joel, at the start, you know, you've got your theology, you've got your strategy and you've got your practice. Um, the homogeneous unit sits in that strategy pocket. Um, the, the theology is, and no one would disagree, that we want to grow children and teenagers to know and love Jesus. Um, the strategy, the homogeneous unit principle was, therefore, we put them into the smallest unit that we can in order to target them specifically. Um, the intergenerational ministry, uh, as we've already talked about, is theologically grounded. I think there's really good arguments for that. But it also works as a strategy to say, well, maybe siloing um, units and ages into a particular very narrow scope is not the best way for discipleship. Maybe actually discipleship happens when you are hanging out with those who are unlike yourself. Maybe the best discipleship actually happens when the teenagers are watching the 40-year-olds um, in church and the way they love each other and the way that they worship. And they go, oh, that's interesting. That's how you live as a Christian. When the preschool kids are watching the teenagers because they're in the same space, and they go, oh, that's what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. So it's actually by hanging out with people who are unlike yourself um, that creates this socio-cultural context in which discipleship can happen. So that's some of the stuff that I'm particularly passionate about in my research. It's cool that um, you talked a lot about now that theology doesn't change. And I know that we've talked about in previous seasons, Stu, about the atonement theology, and that was where 
during the formation of Soul Revival Youth Community, that that was a really important um, step in the development of that ministry because it was it was important to figure out what the theology because everything else comes after that. Um, now we know that we focus more on the atonement theology. That is our chosen or what we think is the best one. But there are, there were some other um, models prior to that or that people were trying to see f- where Sorovival fit. And one of them was the incarnational theology. Mm. Is that correct? Sorry? Yeah. So for many generations, the cross of Christ has been at the centre of the Christian's life and also the centre of church life. So if you look at our denomination, the Anglican Church in Sydney, we have a prayer book and the the liturgy of the prayer book or the weekly services were very very uh, conscious of the fact that they introduced the congregation to the fact that we are saved sinners so that we were constantly taught each week that God is God and we are not but as sinners rather than moping around feeling sad all the time we're just realistic and humble about our fallen state as sinners and joyful and loving the fact that we've been forgiven and so there's this sober joy in our prayer book services uh, that's been really uh expressed for like 400 years since the Anglican Church started. But as we said last week, there was a real problem that developed in the, the post-war period where young people started to reject the church in droves and it got people thinking, wow, culture is changing so quickly that we're now going to have to go on mission to our own young people and how do we do that and how do we find a theology of that? Uh, Mark Center has said that short of a revival, culture is so powerful, we just have to go with it. We can't work against it. And I think that logic has seeped into the consciousness of many Christians um, over the post-war period and into this century. Um, Andrew Root has written a book called Revisiting Relational Youth Ministry and he really interestingly in that book charts the history of youth ministry during that period of time and he looks back to a pioneering youth minister called Jim Rayburn from America who was noticing that all these young people are not coming along to hear the church church's message because they're not even coming to church so there's more and more young people that are growing up without the gospel and and he was really concerned about um yes he still believed in the cross of christ and still saw that central to the christian faith but he then started going well how do i actually connect with these young people he found that uh in a in a in a in a cultural moment where people were moving away from being part of a community to being more individualistic what he found was that people more and more were choosing their own relationships. And, it, and he, in the book, he talks about a lot of reasons why that was happening. But he talks about the second half of the 20th century as being a time where relationships are self-chosen. So young people are choosing their own relationships. They're not necessarily listening to authorities who are telling them, uh, you know, it's a good thing to be part of this church. It's a good thing to listen to the gospel. It's a good thing to accept Christ. They, they weren't respecting that. So that image problem we talked about last week, you know, as we said last week, started a long time ago. It's just not been a recent phenomenon that's just popped up. It's, it started back at, uh, you know, even in the 50s, Jim Rayburn was noticing this. And so what Jim started to do was instead of just opening the doors of the church and hoping young people had come along, he started going into the community and meeting with them and contacting them in their sporting context, in their schools. And he noticed that he needed to form a, well, in his view, he needed to form a relationship with young people before they'd listen to what he had to say. So he talked about earning the right to be heard. Uh, And so he was trying to earn the right to be heard before they would listen. And so he needed to engage with their culture and even become part of their culture. And what he then started to do was go, oh, I'm going to need to look for a theological 
explanation for what I'm doing. I'm going to need a theological paradigm that kind of explains what I'm doing here by going out of the church and hanging out with people. And the thought that occurred to him was that Jesus actually became a Jew to the Jews. And so what he was doing was becoming a young person to the young person, so to speak. And so he he uh, thought through the incarnation of Jesus and thought, well, the incarnation of Jesus is that God has become a human being so that he can bring the message of um, salvation to the world uh, as a Jew to the Jews. And so he was thinking the incarnation was a good theological basis of his ministry approach. So that's what we now know as incarnationalism. And Andrew Root says he tracks that through and says that through the latter half of the 20th century and into the the beginning of this century, incarnational youth ministry, the idea that we need to go out of the church and earn the right to be heard uh, before we can preach the gospel to young people has become quite a, a broadly accepted theological paradigm. I think what we were finding in the 90s was uh, we stumbled across a Back to the Future approach. There's, um, my age group will remember the movie Back to the Future. Some will know it. The idea of Back to the Future was uh, Marty McFly gets in a DeLorean car and goes back to the 50s when he was living in the 80s and then he comes back again. Uh, well, we had a bit of a Back to the Future epoch and a bit of a light bulb moment when we thought we had we'd not understood that most thought through youth ministries were using the incarnation which we believed in, Jesus is in, the incarnation is part of our faith, but we didn't use it as a model for ministry like youth, other youth ministries were because we just hadn't been into any formal youth ministry training. What we did think, though, is we thought, we talked to our elders at our church at Guymer Anglican, and when we talked to them, they said that they used to do things like fellowship teas. They used to have all the family come together. Church was a lot more like a family and less like this artificial event of a youth group that was being constructed we didn't know it, that was an incarnational reality, that youth ministry structure. We just got really attracted to the fact that we wanted to go back and start doing what our elders used to do before that incarnational approach happened. So uh, we started the fellowship tea again, but that was a bit of an old-fashioned word. So we call it a rello bash, which means a relative bash, a party. So the rello bash, as Tim were talking about, were also times where we'd bring the oldies in as well as the young people and we'd all mix. And so that was we just stumbled across incarnation uh, atonement again because the way we, f we we move through to think through the atonement as a model for our ministry and bring the cross back into the center of our ministry not just as a means of salvation but also as a model for life was when we thought about the fact that jesus says love god and love others the way he loved us was to sacrifice his life on the cross and so he teaches us to love on the cross and in Romans 12, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so we thought, let's just do that. Like, let's actually be sacrificial. And what we found was, um, I think one of the shadows of the incarnational approach in the Sutherland Shire was that by, by having a ministry designed for kids and then a ministry designed for teenagers, then a ministry designed for families and a ministry, what the, what the side effect of that was is for some Christians, they started becoming Christian consumers where they went to church expecting there to be a product that was designed for them and they'd come along and they'd actually start judging other products from other churches to see which one they wanted to pick and choose even like you would pick a billabong shirt over a quicksilver shirt or or a pair of added das sneakers over over you know, vans or whatever it was. So <laughs> people were like comparing products even. And so what I've come to think about over the years is in the Solon Shire, the incarnational approach was saying, hey, we'll, we'll come into your world. We'll, 
will embrace your culture, but it actually is a hard moment to then go, but we're actually have to going to confront you with the fact that Jesus calls on us to repent. That's a difficult conversation in that in that model. Um, Andrew Root also says it's a bit manipulative because if you're just forming relationships for people to tell them about Jesus, that that's not not really quite an honest approach to a relationship. Whereas what I liked about putting the cross back into the centre of youth ministry as a model is um, I think it's it's more authentic because it's like I'm going to be who I am. I'm a Christian. We're a Christian family. And people who come along to our youth ministry know from the outset we're Christians. So even if we have a, a raucous, you know, mosh and a dance party or whatever like Tim was talking about, when we go to read the Bible, everyone knows we're Christians and that's what Christians do. So mm. there wasn't some kind of weird disconnect at that moment, which there can be at an incarnational event where no one expected the Bible. It's just surprise, there's the Bible talk. But if people come along to a Christian group to see what Christians do, that's the cool thing. Well, the, the side effects of incarnationalism is, I think it's unfortunately, the shadow of it is it can create Christian consumers who are a bit more individualistic and as a result become more transient. But the result of going back to this sacrificial model that is described to us in John 13 where Jesus says, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another, the really cool part of that is your mission becomes more powerful when your discipleship becomes more authentic. And so instead of being individualistic consumers who are transient, we become more sacrificial people, not consumers, and we become more of a family, not just individuals. And as a result, we create a, a context that is a bit more uh, consistent and ongoing and abiding. And so we have long-term, low-key relational context for young people to be discipled and then also to be missioned. So that's that's what I like about coming back to the cross as the centre of ministry. So we articulate that in our church, that we say if we're going to be an, in, an intergenerational church, we really need to put the cross at the centre of our ministry and and be uh, clothing ourselves with Christ as a Christian community, yeah. I feel like that <clears throat> that's a thing that keeps coming up is uh, in terms of all age, all stage ministry is which we're talking about is um, is sacrifice, and so Jesus sacrifice on the cross for us. But then also, what are we doing to love one another, and what are the things that we're giving up? Now, obviously, we, we don't want to descend into asceticism and all that kind of thing into sacrificing to that level. But mm. I think I was just wondering, Tim. Is that something that resonates with you? And and why do you think um, loving each other in a sacrificial way is the way that God wants us to live in an intergenerational uh, expression? Yeah, uh, because He says so in His Word. <laughs> <laughs> All right, move on. Uh, no, but, I mean, when I th- when I think about um, sacrifice for the sake of others, you've you've got the great passages in uh, Romans and also one Corinthians where Paul is talking about uh, there's in 1 Corinthians there's a sacrificing to idols um, and should I eat meat that's sacrificed to idols or not um, and basically the endorsement there the encouragement that Paul gives is uh, for the sake of the weaker brethren um, give up your own rights in order to love those. Uh, he said, I don't care, just eat whatever you want. But if the person um, is a weaker brethren and they've got an issue with it, then you know, be a vegetarian then. You know? And that's, you know, he's took, there's a lot of cultural unpacking to do for that context. Um, but that idea, that model that actually, if you're a mature saint, of course you accommodate to the younger so, or to the, the younger in Christ, the, the less mature. Um, of course, the um, those who are more mature will put off their own um, desires and their, their own inclinations for the sake of others. Um, 
they at least they should. That, that's that's the encouragement from Scripture um, that those who are in Christ um, sacrifice, sacrificially love and give to others. And so, um, you know, if you're a mature saint and you don't like the music in your church, okay, you don't like the music in your church. But how do you, this person who's less mature, uh, that's the way that they can, you know, worship or connect or something that is keeping them within the folds, well then put up with it because that's what we do as mature Christians. Um, there, you know, there is not everything we do at so revival church that is exactly the way i would do it if i was having a church for one and designing it with all of my personal priorities and the things that i'm passionate about although you and i would have punk music for the for the worship music yeah i think we'd be over we'd be very open to that yeah i'd love i'd love um a prayer book service with punk music i think that would be the the thing that would suit me really well because i love the tradition of the prayer book uh and i just love raucous (laughs) punk music um but uh, that's probably going to serve uh, an audience of one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's okay. It's okay that we don't play punk music at Soul Revival Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's okay that we don't um, you know, use the prayer book every week and using that language. And, and that's okay. We've got a particular liturgy that's shaped by that, absolutely, because we're Anglicans and we're really stoked about being part of the Anglican tradition. Um but it's not about my preferences. Um, and so, yeah, that sacrificial love, as you say, Joel, it just keeps coming up because that's what we have to do uh, in order to grow. And I think the other encouragement from Paul is that that is also what is growing us. Mm. Um, as I set aside my own desires, my own proclivities, the things that I desire so for the sake people. of others, yeah. um, I am actually growing to be more Christ-like. I am growing to be more loving and peaceful and patient and kind and self-control and all those fruits of the Spirit um, because I'm actually in service to others. I'm using my freedom not to serve myself but to serve the body. Um, and so there's, there's so much in, the, in what Paul teaches us, um, particularly in you know, Jesus' teachings as well, where we're just encouraged to put off our own preferences. Um, so, yeah, that's, that sacrificial love, which is, again – distinctively modelled in Jesus um, at the atonement, which is why we, we are really precious on that, um, that that's, that's what we're called to do. And I, I feel a bit concerned uh, as I hear more and more uh, that some people are trying to, well, more, more and more Christians are having a problem with um, the atonement and looking for a, a non-violent atonement, in the words of some thinkers. They're, again, there's this impulse, which is, the incarnational impulse to be culturally relevant, the Jim Rayburn impulse to say, well, if people in the society think that the idea of Jesus sacrificing his life on the cross and dying for us and shedding his blood for us is is a bit of an anathema to some people, then maybe, you know, if we could present a nonviolent atonement, maybe that might help more people access the cross. But the irony is that we've been seeking to be culturally relevant for over 50 years and yet the church is still declining. And I think what's exciting is actually to be countercultural is actually the way to go. And by putting putting our minds into the fact that the Bible teaches intergenerational ministry at a time where our culture separates the generations, and that's a very countercultural approach. But I think being who we are as Christians is going to mean that our discipleship and our mission is effective because that's how God has designed for us to do. So penal substitutionary atonement is not something we should shy away from. It's actually something we should actually seek to understand and if it's difficult for us to understand in our cultural setting we shouldn't be like mark center and say that short of a revival we just have to go with culture i think what we should 
be thinking more like is the great um, uh, pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said we should avoid cheap grace. We should we should actually really understand the costly grace that has been given to us because that makes the gift of God even more beautiful and precious to us when we see how much it cost Jesus to gain for us an opportunity to be part of God's family. It was it was an incredible cost that he paid, an incredible act of love. And so it inspires us to live lives of sacrifice or other person-centeredness. So ironically, to solve the problem of the image problem with young people in the church, if we don't try and package a product for them that they're going to understand and like, um, but actually live a way that's differently and invite them to see how we live that's different to the way they do, um, it, it, which we might be interested to talk about um, uh, in a bit. But, you know, how do we contact young people? How do we spike their curiosity? And how do we show that the Christian faith has credibility? I think it's by being being authentically Christian. And part of that is to put the cross at the centre of our ministry again. Well, so you just brought up those three kind of points, contact, curiosity and credibility, which we, we found in the um, that article by Chris Curtis on Youthscape uh, called Double or, Double or Bust that we talked about last week. Let's talk about that in, in a context of what we've just been talking about. Um, contact, how, how can we use intergenerational ministry to contact youth uh, or young, young uh, we should say young people who, are, yeah. who we want to yeah. win and for young adults too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, we're talking about intergenerational ministry. I don't want to divide up the ages of oh, young. That's yeah, right. you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How do how do we do that in terms mm. of contacting those people through intergenerational ministry? Yeah, well, Stu uh, signaled to this earlier that one of the great things about an intergenerational gathering, a service, um, an all age all stage, is that there everyone is welcome, um, and so one of the um, the uh, things that trip over potentially a homogeneous unit principle um, way of structuring your church, you have a, a youth service which is very much for teenagers and it may um, target their particular cultural identities. It may be uh, particularly focused around the things that suit them really well. Um, but if you've got a teenager who becomes a Christian and wants to invite their parents along to part of the church, what are they going to invite them to? They're going to invite them to the youth service, um, which is really highly targeted at teenagers. Uh, if you've got an adult who becomes a Christian or you've got a Christian um, parents who are seeking to have their teenagers or kids brought along, um, but the service that they attend is very much targeted at middle adults um, and that's the, the unit that they're particularly driving at, uh, is that going to be a place where the kids and the teenagers feel welcome, where they feel that this is actually a point of contact for them? Um, one of the great things that an intergenerational gathering opens up is the fact that no matter what age you are, uh, all are welcome, all are loved, everyone is valued. Um, and not only that, but everyone gets a voice as well. When the children get to speak into the congregations and the 50-year-olds will listen, when the teenagers are going to suggest, hey, what if we um, you know, paint the church this colour? If we, what if we build a skate ramp in the backyard? Or what <laughs> if we, you know, they, they've got ideas about things that we can do um, and the, the middle age and the senior saints sit there and genuinely listen and go, okay, mm. they're the things that are important to you. Let's see if we can make those things happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the point of contact then becomes that all generations are welcome. And likewise, the 80-year-old who moves into your region because they've you know, retired from you know, their job and they've 
they've moved, uh, maybe a sea change or a, a tree change, um, and they come in and they see a community which they are valued and cared for and loved, um, and they have a place where they can speak into the lives of middle adults and teenagers and children, and they are going to be served by them as well. Um, so the point of contact becomes that place where everyone is welcome. Everyone is valued and everyone is heard and taken care of. Um, so I think in terms of the contact point, that's where the intergenerational ministry can really shine. Yeah, that's really cool. Anything you want to add to that, Stu? Yeah, no, I, I, I fully in, agree with all that. I think the other thing too is that with intergenerational ministry, I've seen uh, just through observation that Christians get really excited about coming to church again. And I think uh, I agree with Andrew Root when he says that incarnational approaches to ministry can come across as a bit manipulative sometimes so churches can run a uh, come and hear a footballer come and talk about their career and when people come along and ask a non-christian friend to come along to a maybe a men's breakfast to hear a footballer speak they're coming to hear the footballer speak but then all of a sudden the footballer or someone else gets up and says oh and while you're here let's tell you about Jesus and here's a card you can sign if you want to become a Christian and in fact that's happened so often in the Solomon Shire that there are so many non-Christian people that think, oh, when Christians put on events, they, they'll they get you to come for a footballer and then they'll put something else on. Try and be a dance. Well, it, it can look a bit manipulative. Yeah. But if we just strip it right back and just go, we're just going to do church, we're going to do community together as a big family, it's interesting for me to observe, first of all, Christians getting really excited about coming to church. And when Christians get excited about something, just like anybody who gets excited about something, you end up telling other people about it. And I love seeing... Christian teenagers lose their cultural cringe where they feel a bit embarrassed about being a Christian and they don't really want to ask their friends along the church because they're, they're a bit embarrassed about being a Christian when they lose that cultural cringe and they just get excited about being part of the spiritual family that is the church and they ask their non-Christian friends to at least come and check it out and they say to their friends things like, oh, you should come and check it out and come and meet some of my friends who are our age and some who are in their 20s and some who are primary school and some of our friends are 70 and their friends are like, that's weird. And and then that, I think, spikes the curiosity. That's the, the next bit, that when we live authentically and we're countercultural and we're enjoying it, young people are like, what's going on there? I've never seen that before. And so they might be interested. And we do get young people coming to Soul Revival who are curious about hearing their friends at school so excited about being countercultural to the rest of the culture and not trying to create a Christian form that matches their culture, but actually... Uh, authentically different and I think people find that very curious why would you be different when everybody else is trying to fit in and so when we live intergenerationally we're being different and I think that brings glory to God people come along and they go wow what is the power behind this that like I've never seen because in our culture this doesn't happen mm. and then we say well it's Jesus Jesus we gather around Jesus and he gives us love for people who are different mm. brings glory to him and that then helps with the credibility issue as you were saying about the family i'd love to hear some more about that actually like tell me more about what you think about why is family more credible than institution do you think yeah so um we had i think there is a genuine distrust of institutions and that's been well documented over the last decade um we we don't have a lot of faith as a culture in the the classic institutions our, our governments our banks um, and our churches are caught up in that as well and again as i mentioned earlier often for very good reasons the churches have failed um, there have been scandals there have been ways in which we have failed to live up to our calling um, as people of of god um, and so it's right to be held account to those things um, but it's it 
played into this distrust of institutions um, that is quite common. Um, but when people come to something that is uh, not just trying to prop up the institution, um, it's not to be a production or it's not one of these, as you say, the bait and switch, come and listen to a footballer and, oh, by the way, did you know this footballer was a Christian? He's also going to talk about Jesus. Um, then there's there's no manipulation. It's just this genuineness of, hey, come and meet my friends. Come and meet my family. Um, there's a family we have here at church when uh, one of their uh, sons, now a teenager, when he was in primary school, um, he was just talking in the classroom and said, oh, um, my friend's about to have a baby. And the teacher kind of got concerned and thought there might have been something dodgy going on. And, uh, and they rang up the parent. Oh, do you know that your son has been talking about a friend who's about to have a baby? I want to see if there's some sort of issue that we need to deal with. Um, and the father was like, oh, yeah, no, he's, his friend is going to have it. You know, how old is his friend? Oh, you know, you know late 30s. Um, <laughs> and the teacher couldn't quite work out what was going on because this 10-year-old uh, was genuinely speaking about the late 30-year-old as someone who was their friend. And and they were right because they were. They are friends. Uh, and now, we're now a number of years later, not only is the, the teenage boy and the now early 40s a friend, but the child is now a friend as well. So you've now got this multi-generational mm-hmm. friendship that comes in and it's curious. It raised that teacher's curiosity. I'm not sure if anything came of that, but there was an opportunity to say, yeah, yeah, we're a household. We're a family. We, everyone is welcome. Uh, and to circle right back around to the Rello Bash I mentioned earlier, um, one of the things I really, uh, again, appreciate now in hindsight about the way that I was brought up through that youth ministry was uh, I don't think I went to that Rello Bash night because I was told there's going to be a really great band. Uh, it's going to be really fun and attractional. You should come. Oh, um, and while you're there, oh, we, we might talk about Jesus, but shh. Like we we went to that day because we really enjoyed each other uh, and uh, we enjoyed each other as peers. Our, our youth leaders were there. And then there's all these other young adults and adults who also just genuinely wanted to be friends with us. Um, and one of the things we just happened to do was to you know be silly and to mosh to this great band that was playing just as well as we sat down and we listened to God's word being opened up. So there wasn't this kind of, oh, come for a band and we'll sneak in a little bit of Jesus. It was come for the family, come to this community of people who know you and who love you, uh, where you can be squished up against people who are twice your height um, and everyone is loving each other and caring for each other and genuinely um, investing in each other. Uh, and, and certainly as a teenager, that you know, was one of the things that uh, held me in the faith uh, and held me in the community of God's people, the household of God, the household um, of faith, um, because there was this family and it was a genuine family of people older than me, younger than me, that wanted to be known uh, and know me. And so I think that does give a credibility because you're, you're stripping away any pretension, you're stripping away that uh, manipulation that Andrew Root talks about, um, and actually you're just being authentic. Um, and as you're authentically expressing who you are as a Christian, as the church, as people of God, and you invite people into that, um, again, as Paul writes, it's going to be the aroma of life to many. It's mm. going to be the stench of death to some, for sure. Mm. Um, but it is going to spark a curiosity um, and it's going to give a credibility because we're actually just being authentic in the way that we express who we are as God's people. Mm. That's cool. Fantastic. I think that's a really cool 
place to finish up, Tim. So thank you for wrapping that up so nicely. That's all right, mate. (laughs) Really appreciate it. Um, If you are listening, uh, there's probably no secret uh, that the Shock Absorber is very much uh, in favour of uh, intergenerational ministry. So one of the things that we're actually planning to do later on this year is have a uh, small conference that we're going to be holding, probably online at the moment, especially because we're in New South Wales, so there's a few things going on with lockdowns and COVID. But that's, if that's something that you're interested in, um, you can email me at joel at shogazorba.com.au and we can get in touch. If you have any questions around what we've been t- discussing today, um, it's been quite uh, action-packed and information-filled. <laughs> um, thank you very much to Tim and Stu for, for Thanks, bringing Joel. all of that to us. It's good fun. Um, but uh, if you do, email us and we'll love to answer those questions on the podcast or bring them to the conference. Uh, finally, we Soar Evolver Church, we're releasing a lot of other content. Check it out on YouTube if you're interested. We've got a couple of other podcasts, uh, digital gatherings, and also uh, something called The Chip Line. So check that out. But to wrap it up, guys, I think uh, we'll do a... Rudy, are you ready for everyone to say? Oh, one, one way. One way. <laughs>